Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast. Today, we're going to do something different. We're in extraordinary times right now. Never in my life did I imagine that, first of all, we would be caught in the funnel of a global pandemic that has taken hundreds of thousands of lives. And now we are faced with a new crisis. As I record this, our country is experiencing a lot of pain and a lot of conflict. I've watched a video of George Floyd dying and pleading for his life, and I'm still sick to my stomach about it. My seven-year-old asked me, Daddy, why are people so angry and fighting the police and carrying signs on the streets? I didn't know how to answer him, but I do know this. He's going to know much earlier than I ever did that the struggle against racism and prejudice is real, not just on TV or on social media, but in our own cities, communities, and neighborhoods. The wounds are open again. Actually, they never closed because this problem has endured for far too long, for centuries, in fact. To my black colleagues and listeners, I didn't get this before. This problem of systemic racism, it's not restricted to a white cop kneeling on the neck of a black citizen and squeezing the air out of him. I'm finally beginning to remove the blinders from my own eyes. I admit it, it's a work in progress, but I'm beginning to see the light. Especially after reading an article written by a prominent African-American businessman, he tells his story how he is a tall, athletically built black man living in a predominantly white neighborhood. And he said he fears for his life. So every time he goes out for a walk in his own neighborhood, he takes his sweet, innocent eight-year-old daughter with him and holds her hand as they walk together with the family dog on the other side. He does this because he fears for his life that if people, if the police profile him, as a black man, an athletically built black man in sweats and a baseball cap walking by himself in a white neighborhood, he fears what will happen to him. So holding his daughter's hand and having the family dog keeps him safe, like he belongs. It makes him look like a dad from the neighborhood. This is something I have never had to deal with because of white privilege. And it wasn't until George Floyd was murdered by a white cop and really listening to the protests of educated people of all colors calling for change that has struck me for the first time. I've been indifferent for far too long. I have chosen to ignore the problem of racism. Granted, you know, this isn't the first time a black citizen of the United States of America has been brutally killed by a white officer of the law. But every time it happened, I always chalked it up to, hey, it's not my problem. This is a black issue. What's even worse is that at times I judged him. Those under police custody, as I watched them on TV, I did my own profiling. Oh, he's probably a drug dealer. He's resisting arrest. He probably deserves to get beaten up by a cop. Or how about this? I played the Blue Lives Matter 2 card. As I look back, I missed the point entirely. I lacked empathy. Heck, I host a podcast called Love in Action, but there was no love and there certainly was no action. You know, I still don't fully understand the struggles against the forces of racial injustice, and I probably never will by virtue of my race. But because of George Floyd, it's different. It's different. I see it. I sense it. I feel it. It's palpable. It hurts. And I hurt with them. I'm beginning to get it. I can do better as a white man. We can all do better. So I plead with you, Sit down with your black neighbor, your black coworker, a stranger at the coffee shop, and just listen. Listen without judgment. Listen to understand. Feel their pain. Let it sink in and confront yourself. I am confronting myself as a white male. I'm doing my part in creating change. And change, for me, 
start with my worldview and changing that worldview. So let's all accept that this is no longer a, quote, they problem. It is a we problem. And let's do something about it because this needs to change. We're all humans and we are all equal as God's children. And we all need to change. You know, the issue of racism isn't only fought in the streets against the injustices brought on by white law enforcement. Far from it. You know, this is a business podcast. And so we now have to confront the injustices that we see at work and put the spotlight on what's happening inside our corporate walls. So I mentioned that today is going to be different. For today's episode, I am doing something that is absolutely timely and necessary. I am replaying a previous episode that addresses the issue of racism in corporate America. If you missed it the first time, three months ago, I featured Laura Morgan Robert, professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Laura is a talented scholar and an expert on race, diversity, and inclusion. And in that conversation, she reminded me that racism is alive and well when blacks are pursuing jobs and trying to climb the corporate ladder to become leaders and executives. And thankfully, she also offers some powerful solutions for all of us. But it's going to take all of us, white, black, brown, yellow, whatever your color, it's going to take all of us to speak up, speak out, and be a voice for change. I will leave you now with Laura Morgan Roberts as we address what's really going on in corporate America. Enjoy the episode. And please share it far and wide. And one more thing, Black Lives Matter. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Glad you could join us wherever you're tuning in from around the world. If this is your first time here, let me set your expectation. We're not like most podcasts. We hold space every week for deep, real, and purposeful conversations with the world's top influencers, leaders, researchers, and experts about the powerhouse principles of love that define today's best leaders and work cultures. No, 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 not feelings of love, not the emotions of love, but love that is backed by action. Love and action that will transform your work culture, lead to innovation, create business impact, and generate profits. Love and action in the context of today's episode is also inclusive, it's diverse, it is equitable. It respects all voices and advances all people. All people. That's why I'm so thrilled to have today's guest on the show. Laura Morgan Roberts joins us to talk about a compelling Harvard Business Review article. You've probably seen it by now. If you haven't, I'm going to put that in my show notes because it's a must read. The article is called Toward a Racially Just Workplace which was part of an HBR series on advancing black leaders. So Laura and her co-author, Tony Mayo of the Harvard Business School, they argue that existing corporate diversity and inclusion programs aren't doing enough to support black employees and executives. And she's got the research to back it up. So who is Laura Morgan Roberts? She is professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and a visiting scholar at Harvard Business School's Gender Initiative. As an expert in diversity, inclusion, authenticity, and identity development, Laura's extensive research formed the basis for her study of the influence of African-American business leaders. Laura is the author of numerous research articles, including many that you will find at the Harvard Business Review. 
Laura, I'm honored that you would take the time to talk about a very important topic. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So we got a little ritual here on the show. We always start with a gratitude moment. So what makes you smile these days when you get up in the morning? Yeah, so what makes me smile in the morning is the unabashed, you know, full-blown affection of my little people. My son in particular, who's six years old, uh, my daughter at 11, she's getting a little more reserved about her expressions <laughs> of affection, but they both are just so delightful, and they always greet me in the morning with a smile, and they just remind me uh, why why life is so sacred and the power of connection that gives us the fuel and the energy that we need every day to keep, mm. you know, especially when things can be tough and challenging. We need that affirmation, that genuine, sincere affirmation from people who know us and see us from all angles and still shower their affection on us. I love it. I love how you grounded us with that statement. It's, 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 it's also hard to make the transition from gratitude, but we're going to do it to such a hard-hitting topic about race. But I, I feel, and that's why I brought you on, that this conversation needs to happen not only here, but many times over in our workplaces, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and even in our homes. So I'm going to get right down to business. So after President Barack Obama was elected, a lot of people thought we had reached a post-racial society that, you know, that we had somehow moved, you know, beyond race in the workplace. We're kind of over it now. And here we are. It's 2020. Is this the case? I think what we saw was more of a hope than a conclusion Mm. that people desperately hoped that with the election of a global leader who descended from an African father and a Caucasian-American mother who was wed to an African-American woman um, who had just flipped the script in so many different ways um, and helped helped us collectively believe in what was possible uh, Mm. for an individual, for communities and, you know, for for our nation as a whole, you know, that that Barack Obama's election would sort of symbolize uh, that this was a harbinger of things to come, that sort of this was the direction in which we were moving. And so we saw a lot of hope toward that trajectory of movement. I'm not sure how many people, even at that time, had come to the conclusion that we had arrived at the end state of that trajectory. Right. But there was hope in the sense of move positive movement and progress. And so, um, you know, when we look at the current state of affairs with respect to uh, not just representation, but climate, um, unfortunately, uh, the hopes that uh, were, were upheld so dearly in uh, those years have, you know, starting with 2008, yeah. um, they, you know, they translated for many people into um, some feelings of cynicism mm. and, and fear. Yeah. And so, yes, we, we still have work to do. We draw inspiration and gratitude from the leaders who have beat the odds and who have helped us to create a better world through their acts. Uh, But, you know, we also have to find ways to keep battling against the cynicism and the fear that, um, you know, that that these models of leadership are uh, are not not being reflected more broadly. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And and by the way, uh, uh, my hope for this conversation is to still offer hope, but we got to get through the challenges that we're facing before we get to the other side and offer that hope. So I'm specifically interested in the, in the leadership angle for our discussion since so many of you listening are leaders and managers. So for one, the research states that just 8% of managers and 3.8% of CEOs are black. Why is that? 
Uh, well, first to put that in context, I too am interested in the question of leadership because of the power and influence that comes from leaders in shaping our society. Um, and so we are concerned about these numbers because they don't represent the global population. There's a disparity between the number of people who would be categorized as Black or from African descent um, in the U.S. and in on the planet, you know, um, and then what we're seeing in our senior leadership roles. And then those numbers have been relatively stagnant despite um, some, you know, very public and, and radical movements toward greater inclusion, the civil rights movements and the human rights movements and you know, various forms of legislation and initiative that followed. Um, so, why so slow? <laughs> why, why isn't that trajectory moving forward as quickly as we would like to see? Some would argue that it's due to uh, limitations in the pipeline. So they would trace it back to structural inequalities in educational systems and mm -hmm. Um, whether or not, you know, for our, for our HR listeners, whether or not the talent pool actually exists in a way that reflects the kind of capabilities um, that would be aligned with uh, the leadership demands of today. Um, I personally think that uh, the pipeline argument is a bit short-sighted um, because it's true, we need to focus on uh, lifelong learning and lifelong development and make the kind of investments in our communities that will allow for that to take place. But uh, there are a host of incredibly talented individuals who are willing and ready to, uh, to take on leadership roles and, and they're seeking the opportunity. Right. This is a chance to do so. You know, none of them are fully baked. No leader is fully baked. I teach MBA students. I've been doing so since 2002. So um, I started teaching undergrads 20 years ago in like 98 at the University of Michigan. So no leader is fully baked. You know, we know that leadership development is a process of learning and growing, but you yes. have to be granted the opportunities to be able to learn and grow on the job and get those skill sets. And what has been persistent over time is a practice of sort of betting on familiarity, you know, staying in our comfort zone, giving those new opportunities and those stretch assignments to people who remind us of our younger selves. And so when the people who were in the leadership positions are the ones who are doling out those opportunities, they're also more likely to des delegate those opportunities to people who look a little bit more like them. They're also more likely to be alarmed or concerned when someone who doesn't look like them or share aspects of their experience messes up, you know, mm -hmm. because they're like, oh my gosh, I took a chance. I took a chance. I knew it. I knew it. You know, and so um, you're not given the same freedom to fail when you are a person who exists on the margins or doesn't reflect the prototype of leadership, whatever it may be. In the field and industry, people are just sort of looking at you more closely. You've got to work hard to demonstrate your strengths. And then the penalties for failure are, are pretty hard as well. And that explains why you see some resistance in terms of the movement along that trajectory. Uh, okay, so I'm going to ask you to, because you're better than anybody else right now that I can think of, because you're in the middle of the research, is put yourself in the shoes of the African-American leader experience and, and speak with their voice. What, how would you describe their experience in the U.S. workplace right now? Yeah, this was our goal. Um, this was the goal behind uh, shaping the HBR series in the way that we did, um, which really does center the voice of the African-American, um, you know, accomplished and emerging leader. Um, and oftentimes these conversations are coming through the lens or the vantage point of the manager, you know, whomever that may be. So we actually learned a lot from taking on that vantage point through the HBR series in our book, Race, Work, and Leadership, New Perspectives on the Black Experience. And um, because of that, I would just start out by saying 
there's so much to say that I only <laughs> focus on a couple of things that really struck me. Um, and so I'm going to talk about two key dynamics or point to two key dynamics here. Um, the first is around authenticity challenges. And so to be an African-American who aspires to bring his or her authentic self to work and yet also aspires to advance to senior leadership, um, they experience certain dilemmas around whether or not they can truly bring their whole selves to work. Um, and there, there are things that signal divergence or deviance um, on cultural and racial lines that, you know, people might sort of pause and then draw an, an errant set of conclusions about whether or not this person is really a team player or if they really have the polish or they have what it takes to you know, be able to succeed and take on more leadership. So authenticity challenges is huge. Um, also, even if you have a, a differing perspective from a value standpoint or a process standpoint about how a project should be completed, uh, they express concerns that when they try to share those divergent ideas and perspectives, that they would be viewed as angry, um, a troublemaker, uh, you know, somebody who just wasn't going along with the team and that they would be further marginalized rather than being rewarded and acknowledged for their contributions. Those are earlier career stage type challenges. Later in one's career for that, you know, smaller percentage of African-Americans that do successfully advance into roles of increased leadership responsibility, they then have to deal with another layer of challenges. And their challenges are around authority. Um, and authority is not a bad word. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're just mandating that one person would do, you know, and no questions asked. You know, no, I'm not talking about sort of blanket authority or authority with no accountability. But in authority, we mean, you know, the, just the ability to fully take on the role of leadership. And, and we know that that dynamic is a relational dynamic. Like nobody just declares themselves a leader. You know, there have to be people who are willing to follow the person who has been designated as leader. And so the authority challenges manifest when these leaders experience uh, subtle or overt pushback mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. uh, the directions that they're trying to take their teams or their organizations. Okay, okay. So this is a moment of true question because it's 2020, and, but we got to bring it up. Okay. It's not, even, it's not even does racism still affect the Black experience? I, I know it does. But how is it that it, it, it you know, affects the black, um, the black professional experience, especially those in, in uh, aspiring to become leaders? Talk, talk, talk to us through that and maybe give us some examples of what you've seen. Well, you know, racism enters into the employment experience from the onset. Um, it enters into the experiences that students have with their teachers, their professors, and their counselors, um, which steer them into college-ready tracks or steer them into pursuing degrees at certain types of schools versus others. You know, even uh, Michelle Obama talks about how her guidance counselor told her that she wasn't cut out for Princeton, hmm. um, but she didn't let go of that. And we're all grateful that she didn't, because clearly she had what it takes, whatever that may be, um, to, you know, to be a successful and viable uh, contributor to that learning community. And she's, you know, represented well and continued to grow and develop. But Michelle Obama's story is not her story alone. I, in interviewing accomplished uh, leaders, high-profile African-American leaders, it's amazing how many of them have stories, mm. like Michelle Obama's, where people tried to steer them along a different path entirely at a very young age, mm. um, you know, with very little knowledge or data about what they were truly capable of. So, you know, we've sort of setting that context and, and saying, you know, racism is present in the earliest stages of where people can even begin to imagine was possible 
and to envision themselves as leaders and to start making a set of choices about how they can grow and develop themselves as leaders. Then racism enters into the process when they're pursuing jobs. So there are many unconscious biases, which I know you're familiar with, that enter into the hiring process. Mm. Uh, Resumes are reviewed less favorably when the applicant has what researchers call an ethnic sounding name. So they've gone through and coded the extent to which people consider certain names ethnic sounding or white sounding. And those that are considered to be more ethnic sounding, everything else on the resume is the same. That individual would have to have years of additional work experience to get the same rate of callbacks. Right. Or even just a study about pursuing graduate degrees, um, doctoral degrees, and when students uh, blind emailed faculty in uh, social sciences saying, hey, can I talk to you about your program? I'm interested in pursuing a degree. Those with ethnic sounding names were less likely to be, get a response or be able to line up an informational interview. So it's very early in the process. And then as you move through the process, you start to see some of these different dynamics that I mentioned earlier about the similarity and the homophilies, actually the research term. It's just being attracted to people who are like us. And then we feel like it's less risky to allocate resources to people who are more like us. Um, most of those things are happening on subconscious levels. Um, but it's 2020, so we have to be real. Right. And, and the, one of the differences between 2008 or um, 2012 versus 2020 is that these conversations and these opinions are not swept under the rug anymore. Just kind of the unleashing, in part enabled by technology, um, of you know, public expressions by people in formal authority. Um, of idea, ideologies and beliefs that say, you know, we're better, similar, and we're not interested in your business case for increasing the diversity of our workforce or of our schools and our communities or of our country, uh, for that matter. So there's a you know, very um, strong rhetoric, uh, not just in the U.S., but, you know, also in other parts of the world that is really pushing back against some of these principles of inclusion that, like, again, we thought, we hoped that they had taken root several years ago. Mm. So I don't want to discount those and saying that all of the adversity is due to unconscious bias and these subtle forms of racism, um, they're very overt expressions uh, right now. Um, and what happens outside of organizations, people carry within organizations. Mm. And I think that's something else that leaders have to recognize in 2020 and we have to get real. There's no um, you know, concrete wall that sort of segments the organization and protects it from whatever is happening in society around, you know, inequality and exclusion and, um, and oppression. But these kinds of experiences that people are having in their communities and they're witnessing virtually on the news and on social media, they're bringing all of the residual fears and concerns about those events into their organizations as well. Mm. Well, you mentioned you dropped the business case. I want to come back to that because that's such a compelling thing for me to cover. Yeah. But first, the great thing about the Love and Action audience and the community that we've built here is that we have a lot of advocates that resonate with this topic. We want change. We want equality. We want justice. Mm -hmm. So for all of us reimagining what our workplaces <laughs> could and should look like yeah. in 2020 and beyond, you offer some really powerful solutions. And one of those things that we can do differently is to encourage open conversations about race, right? Yeah. But here's the thing, though. How can leaders create the safe space to do that, especially when this is such a heated and sensitive topic and people may be afraid to bring it up or be put off by because, you know, after all, I'm just here to work and collect a paycheck. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some people that just don't want to be stretched in that way. They don't want to be shifted into a, an uncomfortable space in that way. 
we acknowledge that it is a privileged position to decide to keep the what I call the hush box closed. Race is in the hush box. Mm. In fact, when it comes to DNI work, one of the hottest places in the fire (laughs) because it is incendiary. Um, it's rooted in a history centrally, centuries long of um, intentional um, exploitation and oppression and also just a lot of factual errors about who people are and what drives and motivates them and what they're capable of. I mean, there were theory, very prevalent global theories around scientific racism that made such a hard case, strong case that we were just biologically different and in correspondence with that, therefore inferior. And therefore, many of the practices that we put in place, which actually were practices around workforce engagement or disengagement, if you want to call them that, um, that those kinds of practices were justified and legitimate. So, I mean, it's deep, it's long, and you certainly get why it's scary. What I find interesting today um, is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for having these conversations starts in our own head and in our own heart. Mm. That's the ego. Mm. And our ego is tied up, especially when workforce issues are concerned, our ego is tied up in proving our merit. Now, if you're a member of a dominant group, when someone says, look, we need to be more diverse, then what's if you go one of two ways with that? One is, why? Why do we need to be more diverse? Like, is there something that we're not doing? Is it in what way am I inadequate? Like, what are we missing by not being diverse? And then, you know, you talk through the business case for diversity and people can understand that and they can appreciate that and you can move forward in that direction. But then there's a secondary question that kind of lingers beneath the surface, which is, so if I accept that there has been structural racism, what does that suggest about my own merit? with respect to how I got to where I am today. Because, just speaking in the U.S. context in particular, I didn't come by success easily. I come from an immigrant family as well. My ancestors, my grandparents, great-grandparents came to this country with nothing or very little. I mean, that's a dominant narrative in the U.S., Uh, The vast majority of families in this country share that experience. Um, They didn't come over here with tremendous wealth. I mean, this whole country was built on the basis of very, very, you know, hard conditions of building a a world-class industrial economy. You don't get there without hard work, right? So on the side of dominance, you can see how that path leads to so are you saying I'm, I don't have merit? I don't deserve to be here because that doesn't make me feel good. And then my ego is completely triggered, right? And it makes it hard for me to have a conversation that extends beyond, well, what are you saying about me? And then on the flip side, for those who are on the margins, that these conversations often lead very quickly to accusations around lowering the standards, um, we're being intentional about diversity and inclusion. And if we're, if we're talking about diversity of thought, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with talking about diversity of thought. But when, once we get into some of these protected categories, then it sounds to me like what you want us to do is lower the standards. Mm. Our folks in the organization say, well, what are you trying to say? I don't deserve to be here. I didn't get here on my merit. The standards were lowered. And all of a sudden, we're not having a conversation about the institution and about DNI initiatives at all. Yeah. We're having a very ego defensive conversation around me trying to prove my right to be versus you trying to prove your right to be. And that makes it very difficult for us to explore ways in which we can coexist more productively. Woo. Yeah, I'm astounded by that because so much of the unconscious bias comes into play in our minds that impedes us from having those conversations, those open and honest conversations to move it forward, not to defend or protect your perception of of yourself. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about, let's dig in a little deeper on this whole diversity and inclusion 
movement bandwagon that's been around now for a couple of decades, maybe longer. And many of these programs, by my estimation, tell me if I'm wrong here, Laura, is that sometimes it's become a series of HR boxes that you have to check to make sure that minorities are being recruited, that non-whites are being sponsored for leadership development programs, and then we're mandating anti-bias and anti-harassment training for our managers. Okay, so that's my baggage. I'm speaking from my baggage of what I've seen, okay? These are my triggers, Mm -hmm. and I don't Mm -hmm. see it being effective. Mm -hmm. Now, all those things are good. not saying they're bad, Mm -hmm. but are they working to advance Black professionals? They are working to hold organizations accountable. Hmm. Um, You can't be accountable for that, which you don't count. And you need to count because everybody counts, right? Everybody's experience counts. So uh, metrics are an essential component of an effective DEI initiative and organizations. And I mean, in most organizations, it's like pulling teeth to get any kind of data with respect to race um, and representation, much less engagement. If there are even differences or disparities, we actually don't even know what is the problem that we're trying to solve. So I think about the metrics in that way, in the same way that I, um, as a researcher, think about any kind of research, trying to um, assess and document the status quo so that I can then make an evidence-based set of choices about how to lead a change or transformation initiative. But those kinds of metrics are not the initiative. That is a backdrop for the initiative. And I think that's a problem. You know, what comes next? What's missing? If it's mandatory, um, say one of the most popular initiatives, and we kind of point to this, and, and no, no intent to be disparaging about it, but we have to acknowledge the limitations, as, as you're suggesting, um, a mandatory implicit bias training session, right, or unconscious bias training session. Um, yes, it's important to be aware you can't mitigate against these biases if you don't know that they exist, but then what comes next? Like, how are we equipping people to do the work of inclusion? What are we doing to train people in cultural competency so that they're better equipped to disagree, to have conversations uh, that don't spiral out into ego defensive um, battles? That's the piece that's missing. I, we establish and put forth the promise of diversity. We do some version of a needs assessment. Oftentimes that's overly simplistic, but nevertheless, there's some version of needs assessment. We do some normalizing, right? Okay, there's bias. Everybody has bias. Here's how it shows up. But we never actually get to the work of building better connections across dimensions of difference, teaching people in the moment how do you check your assumptions? You know, if this is happening, you're, you're starting to go into this, uh, this conversation, you notice that someone walks in and they've changed up their hair. An African-American woman, she's changed up her hair and now she has very tight curls. And instead of it, you know, looking smooth as I've styled my hair today, you know, it's looking, you know, very curly and, you know, may take up a lot. So what do you do? You know, do you, what if you like the hair? Do you say, I like your hair, this looks very nice. And that feels like a positive thing to do, right? Do you start going and touching the hair? Do you start comment? Which more often than not is actually what happens. Do you comment on that? These are very small and subtle, but I'm intentionally trying to ground it in just the day-to-day life of what people experience in their workspaces. Because that's where we really have to do the work. And that's where it's not happening. Right. So, I also think we set this expectation like it's going to be speed dating. Like once we have this conversation about race, then all of a sudden, you know, we're going to find the love connection because I know these are your love and fear. So like all of a sudden it's going to be the love connection. And we don't prepare people for that moment where they may be feeling like things got hot and heavy a little too fast. Like I'm not sure if I was ready to go there with this person. I may have said some things that I regret. Like, what do you do 
to go from encounter to encounter to build a relationship. So we also haven't taught people safe ways to retreat. You go in, you engage, you do this intense race work, for instance, you have this conversation, but then you also need to have some healing processes that are built into the organization as well. So when I talk about authenticity and inclusion, I try to emphasize those. My impressions of the way the HR systems and structures are set up is that they're not akin to what you're talking about. There's a big gap there that they have to fill. Can you speak to what would you recommend then that HR leaders should do to improve their DNI programs? I, um, you know, Tim Ryan at, at PricewaterhouseCoopers um, took a radical step in leadership. Um, having some of the observations that I've articulated this afternoon about the fact that what happens in society also affects how people show up to work. Um, and, you know, looking at data that shows that um, African Americans in particular are very afraid and uncomfortable about bringing up race related issues at work. Um, what Tim Ryan encouraged his organization to do or supported his organization in doing, I can't remember quite who initiated it. Lots of these types of acts are in fact grassroots led, not always HR led. So it's about being responsive to what's happening in your local organization. Let me say that first and foremost. What should HR do? They need to be in listening mode, working with senior leadership and being responsive to what's bubbling up from the organization and what they're saying they need. But then how can you formalize the environment so that in the practices and rituals, so that it's easier for employees to be able to access and get what they need. So at PwC, they created a set of regular race forms and they brought in some people like Melody Hobson from Aerial Investments, who's done a TED talk on Color Brave. And she talked and then they had small group exercises. And, you know, I've talked to many other organizations that are doing similar things. You know, they are deciding, okay, we're ready now. We want to have this conversation. How do we sort of build in not just a one-off, like my annual sort of Black History Month talk, but how do I build in a series of forums where people can access this information and then start to work together and process in small groups? So that's one. I mean, another thing I would say is um, this is just different. You know, that's more about culture and climate. I think there are also elements around strategic HR that involve hiring and promotion. Um, and we talk about those as well. Uh, you need to look at the data. You've got to break down the data um, by the subcategories and then follow up with some quali qualitative analysis, often engaging external consultants um, because the internal team uh, may not provide the safe space for, for people to honestly share their experiences in the organization. Um, but don't be afraid to ask the question. I can't tell you how many companies I've worked with who said, yeah, we want to do something about this. We want to do something about this. And then you go down the path and you've got the research design. And just when you're ready to go out and start engaging folks in the field, legal pulls it. So it's that fear of litigation, and I don't know what we're going to find. I'm not sure if we want to even ask the question. Um, so you can't do that. You can't pull it. You've got to go all the way and ask the questions. Then in your training and development programs, um, maybe we can talk about this a little bit more, but we highlight how to develop or customize your training um, and leadership development programs in ways that are more culturally and racially inclusive. And then the last component is learning from failure, as I would say with a with broad brush. Um, but for instance, when you lose a talented uh, African-American leader, high profile or high potential leader, and they get recruited to go work someplace else, or they might even go decide to launch their own business and be an entrepreneur, that is an opportunity for learning. Mm -hmm. That is the moment in which we need to ex execute a formalized process to understand what happened. Why did we lose this incredibly talented individual? Instead of sitting back all day and hemming and hawing and saying, oh, they're not enough out there. We tried, you know, we've tried to diversify our slate of candidates. We've 
tried to make their materials anonymous so we're not so subjected to the racial biases or the gender biases. You know, they put in place some of these kinds of tactics because we got to get more in. What are we doing to keep the ones that we have? And when they leave, are we learning from their experiences? And are we instituting changes on the basis of what they recommend? Because ultimately, if you want to understand how to be more inclusive, you can't sit around and talk to the people who already feel included. Hmm. You're not going to be able to tell you. You got to ask the people who don't feel included. Hmm. Take yourself back to the schoolyard. When were you on the schoolyard? When was a time when you didn't feel like you were part of the in crowd, whatever that was? And what would they have had to do in that particular moment to help you feel more included? Hmm. You know, it would never occur to them because they're feeling good. They're riding high and they're assuming that everybody else has found their tribe or found their people. And so they're in a similar in, in a similar zone. Um, but we can't miss those opportunities to learn from what is, in many cases, an organizational failure. Yeah. You dropped a hint earlier about the business case for all of this. And so there's just a lot of talk in thought leadership circles about how diverse teams are more productive, they're more innovative, and they you are. know, all of that stuff. So there's the business case for it. <laughs> you believe we got to shift away from the business case and embrace the moral case for it. Yeah. Tell us about why this shift is important and really how might that look in that practice? Like, yeah. So. Let me start out by saying, you know, I didn't get there. I didn't come to this sort of conclusion in, say, 2008 <laughs> or 12 or even 16. But you know, now in 2020, um, and it, in large part, not just because of what's happened in terms of global leadership, but also in terms of my intensive research between six, 2016 and 2020 that led to the book and the HBR series has been about trying to understand the paths and the impact of African-American business leaders. So, you know, I've learned a lot. So really coming out of that research process and reflecting upon, okay, what's the key lever? What's really going to make a difference? You know, what, what did I learn about why and how systems transform to become more racially inclusive? What really drives that shift at the end of the day? And then I go out and I teach and I speak to executives and I'm trying to, you know, sort of hear how they take up these conversations in their space. And I find when it comes to the business case, there are certain people who always want more and more and more and more and more evidence. Like, it's never going to be compelling enough because it requires work. And for some people, just the work, the discomfort that it brings, they're not willing to experience the pain in order to get the gain. So you can tell them all day about the gain, but they still need a rationale for taking on the discomfort and the pain. Uh, that would bring out the payoff. And so an instrumental argument, um, there are other ways that people can earn a profit, that businesses can, businesses can turn a profit, that individuals can source for new or innovative ideas. Um, and so they may opt, and they tend to opt for those ways of gaining or earning a profit. The people who are leading transformational change, they get it in their head, like they understand the value proposition, but they also feel it in their heart. And so when I said, okay, what, you know, what is the secret sauce in this? What am I learning about the secret sauce and truly promoting uh, greater uh, racial diversity, inclusion, and equity? That secret sauce was about the heart. People mm. had a heart for it. They cared about it. They just felt like making this investment uh, was just the right thing to do at the end of the day. They knew they could get some pushback. They knew there were people who would have questions. They knew that the cynics were abundant, uh, but it was a personal commitment to them because they wanted to play a part in creating a more inclusive community and society. And they saw their leadership as an opportunity to do that. Hmm. So 
3.8% of African Americans are CEOs, well under right. the general population right. uh, percentage. So speak to the African American professional mm-hmm. wanting to grow as leader. What advice do you yeah. give them on how to navigate these challenges they face today? Right. Well, CEO is, is more than a title, right? Um, CEO is really about having control over resources and being able to shape the strategy of an organization. And so, you know, for anyone who aspires to leadership um, at that level, you know, you've got to be incredibly ambitious around growing and becoming, um, developing the skills, learning how to be a strategic thinker, taking on an enterprise-wide perspective, being able to be on the dance floor and the balcony at the same time, as Ron Heifetz says, you know, being an outsider insider. How do I, you know, learn some authentic ways to connect with people who aren't like me? This is like fundamental. Like what are some personal characteristics that I'm comfortable sharing about myself? Um, If someone were to ask me a gratitude story, what could I tell them that was personal, but not something I felt was so private? right? Because you've got to find a way to let people in. So first, developing your own sort of understanding of uh, or um, initiative around how you can be authentic in this space. What are there some personal important things that you can share? The second is look for the green lights. Um, you know, the, the red lights blaze, you know, they show up a lot more brightly, you know, they make us want to stop, yellow lights, exercise, walk with caution. Um, because people have seen their own experiences and they vicariously observed the experiences of others um, who have been marginalized, who have been targeted by racism, sexism, and other forms of bias, uh, they will likely operate on caution, on red or on yellow, and are waiting for the green light. Um, But sometimes when you're staring so hard at red and yellow, you kind of miss green when it comes doesn't it feel like the red light lasts forever and the green light is pretty short. So you got to be ready when it comes. I call the green lights the individuals who have a heart for inclusion. They are going to reach out to you. There are people who are going to say, hey, we should have lunch sometime. I'd love to hear more about what you're doing. They mean it. Nine mm-hmm. times out of 10, those people mean it. If they single you out individually in that way, it's not judgy. It's not a test. Like they genuinely are trying to give a green light. So sit down and have your personal story together and demonstrate that you have some interesting ideas about how you might approach a problem or a process or an opportunity in the organization. That's early on in building the relationships. Because what happens is down the road, when Tony and I wrote this piece with Robin Ely and David Thomas, we published in 2018 called Beating the Odds. And we looked at the less than 60 African-American women in the history of Harvard Business School who have reached the C-suite. And we asked them, how did you get there? You know, how did you get to the C-suite? I mean, that 3.8% is, you know, by and large men, by the way. So then you're really asking, okay, Ursula Burns, how did you get there? And they talked about a number of things, but they talked about their authenticity And that they had found that way to bring their value self into the work. They talked about their agility, their ability to, um, you know, flex, to think outside of the box, to try to move and shift their careers, to take, take on new opportunities. They talked about their emotional intelligence. So when things happen, microaggressions that happen all the time, challenges to their authenticity and their authority happened, they knew how to manage their ego around that. And they could be tuned in. But they said, I didn't get there alone. There were sponsors. There were people who were advocating for me on my behalf when I wasn't in the room. And that catapulted me into levels of opportunity that other people never anticipated that I would have. Mm. Mm. Laura, we have this ritual here at Love and Actual. We ask our guests their views on love and fear. Okay. So, why do you think fear is still so prevalent in how businesses are managed when we have the evidence that principles of love that you talk about, inclusion, authenticity, safety, openness, point to positive outcomes, and it's great for business? 
Yeah, so I'm an organizational psychologist by training, and I um, ground most of my research in um, appreciative strength-based, asset-based orientations, such as those that show up in positive psychology, positive organizational scholarship, appreciative inquiry, asset-based community development, and so forth. So when I think about the question here in terms of the origins of fear, I believe that it comes from the ways in which we continue to cultivate and sustain a mentality of scarcity mm. in our organizations. We're short-term focused and we structure our organizations in, in ways that trigger people's feelings of scarcity. If it's not scarcity of resources, it's scarcity of time. And when people are operating in that dimension of scarcity, they're triggered, they're threatened, they're closed off, and they're really afraid because they're feeling incredibly vulnerable. Um, we don't identify and nurture the abundance of resources that already exist within our organizations um, because we've adopted a mentality that people are more motivated to be competitive if you sort of dangle the carrot and, and stick rather than, you know, help to reinforce the abundance of resources that exist within us and among us. That is one of the most scholarly answers I've gotten in over 45 episodes, <laughs> but I so appreciate it. I'll take it. You, especially from you. <laughs> so, Laura, we bring it home with two final questions, and I'm going to ask you to get into your heart. Yeah. What would you say is really tugging at your heart right now that you want us to know? You know, what's tugging at my heart is how do we make people care? You know, even in going through and writing this book and publishing this book, I had to, in writing the HBR articles, there's still that voice in the back of my head, which I'm sure is also the tugging in my heart, which is, do people really care about the 3%? You know, the people who are feeling included and feeling like they're thriving, do they really care about people who are feeling disenfranchised or disadvantaged? You know, are people really committed to maximizing human potential and helping our society to become the best that we can actually be. Um, and, you know, once I really sort of start to analyze what's happening through uh, the lens of personal and collective pain, uh, I recognize that, that people do care, um, but they're, you know, they're afraid to try to step outside of the box and do something in service of the other. And so it tugs at my heart that uh, we would be able to motivate leaders to shape organizations in ways that really put the concern for the other as a central principle in how we do business. Mm. Powerful. And you get to end the interview your way with one final takeaway that we can take with us that's going to make a difference in our lives. What would you like that to be? What I want that to be is that um, race would no longer be scary and um, associated with problems and challenges, but it would be embraced in the same way that we think about variety as the spice of life in so many other aspects of our world. Um, you know, I think about not to like, depersonalize it and say that humans are like a buffet because they're not, I mean, you're not dishes to be served up, but in a way, metaphorically, you know, we recognize that people have diverse palates and that there's something for everybody. And so the variety is the spice of life is what keeps us interesting is what makes our existence worth, you know, savoring. And I would love for us to, think about race and all of the variety that it brings into our world through that perspective in 2020 and beyond. Because I think there's just amazing possibilities that come from uh, tapping into and activating the differences that we all bring in our work. Race is one, but it intersects with many, many others. And the more excited and curious we get about those differences, uh, the more fun we can have together. And I want it to be more fun. Yeah. 
You have been an absolute delight to speak with. I'm honored. I know this topic has to get out in a way that works for all of us in the workplace. So I'm going to put some of Laura's resources in the show notes. So look for it, guys, on my website for the link to her article as well as the series on Black leaders. But if listeners want to maybe connect with you, how can they do that? LinkedIn is always great. Or you can shoot me a note through my website, uh, laura at lauramorganroberts.com. It's another way to connect. Twitter at AlignmentQuest on Twitter. Perfect. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.